invite you to Acts chapter 5. We'll look at the end of chapter 4 to begin with, but we'll be looking primarily here at Acts chapter 5 this morning. I must say that as a child, I hated spankings. I never welcomed correction from my parents really in any form. Uh, Left to my own ways, I think I would have always chosen for my parents to leave me alone, to never administer discipline in resistance to my fleshly passions. But how thankful I am today that God graciously placed me in a family where I was told no. How I praise God for mercifully providing me with parents who faithfully disciplined me when I violated God's will. And this heritage means so much to me in these days. I realize it's not enjoyed by everyone. It's not enjoyed by everyone here in the providence of God. I was reminded of that particularly this week, I believe it was, as I was reading a local newspaper And it reported about a mother who drove her teenage son to a parking lot brawl, knowing that he had a loaded gun and intended to use it. This mother put her son in her car and drove him there to do the deed, which thankfully didn't do or missed. But it just caused me to pause again and thank God. To thank God for parents who do not permit their children to become whatever they want to be. Thank God for parents who understand that raising children is a transformational undertaking. It's a hard-fought, incessant battle for maturity. Now, in that light, grasp this thought. God is such a father to his people. God is that kind of a father to his people. And Eden Baptist Church is a spiritual family that God uses as a staging ground where he carries out his transforming, sanctifying agenda in our lives. That's what this church is. And that's who our father is. And we should rejoice Rejoice because by His Spirit, God is always laboring to transform us into holy people who image the moral maturity of Jesus Christ and to do that in His grace in community. Remember this. We know this. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. I'll display it for you here. Jesus Christ gave Himself for us in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is Christ's agenda. And this transforming work takes place within the context of the local church where the saints are equipped and brought to maturity. Remember this passage, Ephesians 4. In the context of this equipping within the local assembly, we're equipped for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, what's Christ's agenda? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. The head of what? The head of the church. Into Christ. This is Jesus' agenda. And it means that the local church is the family in which God disciplines us and transforms us as our sins, many of them displayed in community, are rebuked and are corrected and are disciplined. Are you with me? You're with me at that spot. You're saying, I don't always like that. That's not always a whole lot of fun, to be disciplined, to be corrected, to be challenged. As a child, maybe you're 
a lot better than I was, but I remember as a child, I did not like parental discipline. And as a Christian, I do not naturally take to the idea of having my sins exposed and being held to account for my immaturity in the context of a local church. That's painful. It's a bull market these days for cultural Christianity, for churches that help people honor religious traditions while leaving their sinful passions alone, not touching them, not going there. But the vibrant, biblical, healthy local church is a transformational body. It is not a ritualistic, traditional body. It's a transformational body. That's what our family is. That's what Jesus intended it to be. It's a transformational body in which spiritual discipline and moral accountability play an integral role in the lives of the members of this assembly. Such churches, let's say it, are not always comfortable. They're not cozy places where friends live together in utopian bliss. But by God's grace, they are places where genuine sanctification is taking place and where people are being fitted for eternity. In a rather provocative manner, these realities are displayed for us in Acts chapter 5. Remember, as we move into that chapter, we looked at it last week in chapter 4, Verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We'll find further proof as we move through the text in chapter 5 that that was voluntary, not imposed communism. Along with this, verse 33, God's presence was made known. Great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You want to bring out one person in this that really encouraged the heart of God? that encouraged the heart of the church, that generated all kinds of interest and excitement. Here he is, verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field. It belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What motivates Barnabas to do this? He is motivated by the loving sacrifice of Jesus, who for our sakes became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. Barnabas sells a field, impoverishes himself materially, at least on that point, for the superior joy of blessing the people of God. Voluntarily, willingly, pouring out his heart and his life to bless others. From everything that we know in the text of Acts, this was genuine, it was selfless, it was joy-producing love and grace in the heart of this good man. And the infant church, as I said, rejoiced. They were energized by this encouraging act. How could you not be humbled? And how could you not be encouraged by what Barnabas did? He was the son of encouragement. There's such beauty and such wonder here, and the reception that he received from the church had to be deep. And so through these first four chapters of Acts, we have looked at the great success of the gospel of Christ. People are coming to know the Lord in large numbers. The church is growing. There's enthusiasm. There is great joy in Christ. We've also gotten a taste now of the fact that this early church will receive opposition. Remember, the Sanhedrin, the most important men in Israel, stood up against Peter and John and said, boys, go tell your friends, no more conversation about Jesus Christ. Don't teach in his name anymore. And we're realizing that this isn't all going to be easy. That Satan is rearing his head and is screaming against these apostles. But seeing that first occasion of opposition, we now come in chapter 5 to the seminal case of church discipline. 
The battle has been from outside, and now the battle is on the inside. The seminal case of church discipline begins with a man who is named, and therefore stands for us to this day to consider. His name is Ananias. His case is taken up in these first six verses of chapter 5. Reading in verse 1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. We will consider Ananias' motivation more carefully a bit later. But the connection to Barnabas' gift is unmistakable. In fact, as the two connect, the Greek word that is used is he embezzled some of his own money here. Ananias wanted to be seen by the church in the same light that the church saw Barnabas. But Ananias was not willing to make the same sacrifice, and that led to a fatal decision. Barnabas gave liberally in order to pour out love for Jesus and his people. Ananias gave only what he thought necessary to purchase recognition and status from the church. If an angel could have sent a message to Ananias and said, you don't have to give quite that much, and they'll still think you gave it all, he would have moved it back to that figure. And if he could have learned that I could give a little bit less, he'd give a little bit less. What he was seeking to do was to purchase the recognition of the church so that his status improved. And so he lies. He embezzles money from the church. You can see the picture there. The apostles assembled. We don't know exactly where or what the setting is, but somehow assembled there, and Ananias approaches with a face plastered with false piety and a heart beating rapidly as he plops down the money bag at their feet for their use, claiming that it's the entire sale price of his field. What will Jesus do? This is his church. How will Christ respond to this first evidence of entrenched sin. Verse 3, but Peter said, apparently from a prophetic word from the Lord, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, we can think here of how Peter might have said this. Maybe he got right in Ananias' face and just screamed at him. But I think perhaps he said it with a broken heart. This is the Peter who, not too long ago, had betrayed his Savior and lived. I think with something of a broken heart, he says, Ananias, why? Why? Well, some might say because the apostles are making us do this. There's these great financial needs and we have to give it all, right? No, look at what Peter says in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? He's saying two things here. Ananias was under no moral obligation to sell his land at all, or secondly, to give all of the proceeds from the sale. The money was his, and he was free to do with it what he chose. It was a stewardship from God to be handled as he believed God wanted him to handle it. Why have you done this? As we notice in verse 3, the reason is that Satan had filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Yes, Ananias lied to the apostles, but on a deeper level, Peter insists that Ananias had opened his heart to the influence of Satan and had lied to the Holy Spirit. Cosmic powers, hear it, cosmic powers are intensely interested in the life of the church. And a war has broken out here in the spiritual realm, and Ananias has joined the wrong side. 
You didn't need to sell your land. You didn't need to keep back part of the proceeds. You were free to give none of it. You were free to give some of it. You are not free to lie to the Spirit of God and say that you've done what you didn't do. What happens next is shocking. Why is it, says Peter, that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, and they wrapped him up, and they carried his lifeless body out, and they buried him. There's no doubt he's dead. The Greek word that Luke uses to describe Ananias' death is always used in the New Testament of a person who is cut down by divine judgment. And that is what we should assume has happened here. God strikes Ananias down and young men in the assembly probably wrap him in a shroud, take him outside, and bury him right then. To no fanfare. He's gone. There is a second case sadly, and that pertains to his wife, Sapphira. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. You wonder if she wondered why Ananias was late for supper. or Maybe they had something arranged for her to go there, but three hours later, she comes and doesn't know what's happened, has no concept. Maybe she was troubled and said, I better run over there and see what's going on. I'm sure that her conscience was bothering her. And in verse 8, we read that Peter says to her as she comes in, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. He gives the price to her that Ananias had stated. He entraps her. On one level, this is an apostle, don't try this at home. But he does entrap her. But you know what? On the other hand, all she has to do is tell the truth. That's it. All she needs to do is line up with Jesus and not with the powers of darkness and to simply tell the truth and all will be well for her. And she will hear the devastating news of what has happened to her husband. But no, there is sin that is whelmed up in her heart, controls her, and she speaks the same lie. Verse 9. But Peter said to her, How is it? that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Again, I think he says it from the heart of a man who's done that himself. He knows the mercy and the grace of God. It's not a condemnation of how much better I am than you and would never do such a thing. He's betrayed the Lord too. But he speaks the truth to her. In this situation, at this time, I ask you, how is it that you have conspired to test the Spirit of the Lord? Together with her husband, Sapphira's lie banked on the assumption that the Spirit of God would not discipline her. This word test is very interesting. She may not have thought about it in those terms. She probably didn't. But that was the reality. God knows everything. And when we lie, we arrogantly bank on the assumption that God will extend mercy. We might even, in our irrationality, think He's not going to care. This is a small deal. He's not going to pay any attention. It's interesting how Peter puts this. You have tested the Spirit of God. We find... The reaction to this rebuke, the middle of verse 9, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Two lifeless bodies brought out and buried. And the reaction to that, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. We read that in verse 5. Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Keep that in mind. 
Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Apparently those outside the church. Both the church inside and unbelievers outside hear the news of Ananias and Sapphira's death and they fear. They became pointedly aware that God was at work in this assembly. He was actively pursuing her purity. And that reality secured everyone's attention. I'd like to consider the implications of this response a bit later. But let's go back to that earlier point that we've been sitting on. Let's stop here and consider what we've witnessed in this seminal act of church discipline. The first thing is the objection that has to come from here, from this text, particularly on the part of those who criticize the uh, New Testament and do not want to take it at face value. And the objection here is that this is extremely harsh. In fact, Peter doesn't even act like Jesus here at all, does he? Look at what Jesus does as he responds to Judas. He's gracious with Judas. He's patient with Judas. He extends the offer of repentance, in a sense, to Judas. Peter doesn't do anything like that. He just comes down and slams this couple. In fact, some go so far to say they're so troubled by this passage that they say this is really a story that some Christians made up. They were a small uh, contingent of the early church. They were very non-grace kind of people, and they they didn't like the fact that that there were some things going on in the church where grace was being evidenced, and they're they're sort of mean-spirited people, and they made up this story. Or the spin is put on it. They were trying to explain how some people died before Jesus was coming back because they all believed Jesus said that he would be coming back right away and therefore they had to do something to try to make it look like Jesus was telling the truth. Well, such explaining away of the text reflects minds that do not appreciate the holy nature of God, frankly put. They don't understand who God is and the right that he has. It's never exercised cavalierly thoughtlessly, mindlessly. Never has God ever exercised such discipline. But when you have a view of God that's that small, such explanations are ready at hand. I think such explanations also wholly underestimate the passion with which Jesus labors to purify his church. Think of it, as a child, there's times you just don't get what your parents are doing in the area of discipline. But they're seeking to produce maturity for down the road, not for the moment as such. Not to please you in the moment, but to do something that has the long look. And when Jesus gets involved in the life of his church, he is always purifying us for eternity, not just for this short life. Such an explanation as these fail to fully recognize that it is God who strikes down Ananias and Sapphira. Peter is doing what he's been called to do. It is an authentic account. But let's dig into it a bit here, because I think not only is it an authentic account of what truly happened, but it is a unique situation, and we need to understand that. Do you remember the conquest, the Israelites going into the Promised Land? They cross the Jordan, and what happens there? Remember Achan steals some things he fancies? God had said, he put the ban on all of these conquered peoples and said, with this place in Jericho, you're to give it all to me. This is going to be like a tie, the first fruits, a payment up front to show that you worship God and you're going to depend on him for the conquest. It is all to go to me, but Achan took some of it. And what did God do? He judged the man with death. At the start of the conquest, God was making it clear in a very stark way, I want a purified people. You know, there's all kinds of people in Israel who violated the ban that God had established and didn't deal with the people in Israel the way he wanted them to that didn't die. But at the start of it all, God came down and said, this will be a pure people. Joshua 7. Do you remember the start of the priesthood, Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu dishonor the law of God, and they are struck dead 
at the beginning of the priesthood. Again, God's saying, my people will be a pure people. And here, this first occasion of public sin in the infant church, Jesus severely disciplines Ananias and Sapphira in order to dramatically establish the truth that he redeemed us in order to purify us as a body. The church is a purification project, and no one was ever going to miss that fact. As Ananias and Sapphira's fresh graves are viewed by the church and by a watching world. So this is a unique situation at the start of the church. This is not now how God continues to deal in discipline with people who are proud and materialistic and seeking the status in the church and reputation in the church. That's not how he keeps working, is it? If that was the case, Donald Gray Barnhouse put it, if God exercised the same form of discipline today... You'd have to have a morgue in the basement of the church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. What is he doing today? Just like in the conquest, initial firm statement, just as with the beginning of the priesthood, initial firm statement, so we have here an initial firm statement. But life carries on. And God doesn't take us all out graciously in this way. But now where is it? If your brother sins, Matthew 18, against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, God will strike him dead. That's not what it says, is it? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Put him on the outside of the circle of the church if he will not listen and seek to win him to Christ. You don't know if he's lost. You don't know if he's saved. But you're not going to treat him as if he is in the fellowship of the church because of this unrepentant sin. Different way of dealing with church discipline, but the principle is here. Brothers, Paul says in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. This now is the way of church discipline generally. Can God take someone out in church discipline? Can He kill them if He chooses to? Of course He can. I think generally that would be a case where it would be very obviously clear that this is the judgment of God, but he can certainly do that. That is not, however, his typical way of dealing with church and the issues of discipline. So this is a real account. We have to understand that it's a unique account. And let's delve down now one step further as we look at Ananias and Sapphira's sin. What did they do? What is wrong? Why did God judge? It was a unique situation. But what was it that was wrong? First of all, they lied. That's very obvious. They stated as real what was unreal, as true what was false. And they thereby stepped out of sync with Jesus' nature as truth personified. They were saying what Jesus would not say, that they had given all of the proceeds of the sale. Saved by Jesus, we assume perhaps they are not believers. The fact that they are so quickly judged might be evidence that they are. But we don't know, but at least theoretically saved by Jesus so that they might speak the truth in love and grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, Ephesians 4. They chose rather to test God by believing they could prosper better through lying than by synchronizing their lives with the character of Jesus. There's a better way through life. And that's for me to lie. And when we lie, we strike out on our own course against Jesus, who knows all things. Believing that we can do better without him, and thus testing the Spirit of God. But we need to go a lot deeper than this. I don't believe that Ananias and Sapphira got up that morning with a taste in their mouth to lie. 
Let's go out and lie. It doesn't work that way, does it? Lying always serves some deeper root desire cause. Look for the desires here. What did they want? What is it that they're driving at? The lie is the tool to carry that forward. But I think what is really the problem here is that the functional deity that Ananias and Sapphira serve was not Jesus, but self. They were worshiping at the throne of pride and greed. And lying was the tool that they used to glut their desires to be thought well of by others. And their desire for the satisfaction of wealth over the satisfaction of a clear conscience before God. What should matter to them most didn't. At the core of their sin was a failure to worship their Savior, who, though he was rich, became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. They were so out of touch with that Jesus That Jesus, the Jesus who created the universe, who came to earth in humility and in flesh, that Jesus who died on a cross and rose again, who ascended, that Jesus who reigns from heaven's throne and was coming back, that Jesus was a million miles away. They wanted status in the church. And they were banking on the fact that Jesus was just going to leave them alone. Holding on to the God of money, they impoverished their souls and bankrupted their integrity. Holding on to the God of pride, they were utterly shamed and humiliated. You see, the greatest concern... The greatest concern with lying is not getting caught. The greatest concern with lying is that we have become disoriented from God and will suffer the consequences our false gods will wrench out of us eventually. Worshiping self and pride and greed in the context of an assembly that Jesus was purifying Their heart loves were exposed. It came out. And they were crushed by the hand of God. Let me say that if you join, or if you have joined the membership of Eden Baptist Church, and you use your gifts to serve the Lord among us, let me assure you that the false idols that attract the desires of your heart will be exposed. Jesus will see to that. If you are holding on down deep to pride, it's going to come out. To greed, to self-centeredness, to lust that is not left go and dealt with, to the lack of love, to idolatry of children, to a lack of compassion, to an idealism that is really idolatry, to false views about God, to bitterness over past suffering, whatever it is, these blind spots sometimes will be exposed. At other times, they will be things we know about, but we want to hide. They'll be exposed. Not everyone, certainly not as we retain a pure heart before God in confession of our sins, But when I remain blind to a sin or when I remain entrenched in a sin, it will be exposed in the context of a healthy local church. I know this. I know it as I watch this assembly and as I see in my own life God's exposing sin in my heart in community. I think back of many years ago as a very young man coming to this church. And we were assembled in a small discussion group on a Wednesday night. And there was an older gentleman who I believe was seeking to humble me before the church and to expose my lack of knowledge about the Word of God. 
and in pride and in self-protection, I lied. I told the church what was not true about me and my knowledge and how I had prepared for that lesson that night. It was pride in the heart. It was a desire to look wise and to look mature past my whole 27 years. And that pride was my functional God in that moment. And the tool that I used to grease my wicked agenda was to lie to the church. In the mercy of God, I knew it. And the next week, as that group gathered, I confessed my sin to them. I wanted to tell you that wasn't fun. That wasn't easy. And it really was humbling. And really, in right measure, it could, well, in one sense, have been possible for this church to have thrown me out. But they forgave me. And that, I think, is so much of the key of understanding the purifying work that Jesus Christ is doing is that knowing that's what he's doing in everyone's life and in my own life, I meet others in this process of sanctification with forgiveness. I meet others with compassion. I meet others with understanding because I see how God is exposing my sin to this community of believers in the midst of our interactions, in the midst of our serving Christ together, under the spotlight of the Word of God, when we get elbowed and our toes get stepped on and we disagree, in the midst of all of that, sin comes to the surface at times. We need to be a body of believers who understands this and knows how to meet one another with grace and compassion and forgiveness. And if we don't understand that about ourselves, you know what we become? An Ananias and a Sapphira. We become the kind of people who say, what I care about most is how others see me. I don't want anyone to know the sin in my life. I don't want to be exposed. I want other people to see me as having it all together. And we begin to relate to our church as play actors with a mask. But if we will see what Jesus is doing, we will know that this is his grace to us to put us in the midst of a family of God that understands with compassion and forgiveness, who knows how to restore, and to know that together we're in this. And it's Jesus that's doing the work. Now, this is heavy stuff. I mean, frankly, think if we're really going to be the church Jesus wants us to be, there's not a lot of people out there asking for that kind of discipline. Like kids in a home, they want to be left alone when they need discipline. And it's in the heart of all of us. But I want you to see, and we've rested most of our time here on this first case, this seminal case of church discipline, but I'd like you to see a principle that flows from this, I believe, in the text. And we'll labor here for just a few more moments. But notice verse 12. What happens? What we see here is a principle of repulsion and attraction. I'm sorry, we'll move to 12 in just a moment. Just, you know those magnets you put together and they just, they come together. Scientists can fill all this in. I've forgotten, I learned it in school, but I forgot how it works. But, you know, the magnets come together. Or the magnets repel one another. You can't put them together because of the magnetism. That's what we see here. There is repulsion and there is attraction. The repulsion we find in verse 12. Now we'll go there. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. How do you read that? God is working. 
God is among these people. There are things that are happening that cannot be explained any other way. God is with this body of believers. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Now that's a curious thing, isn't it? That's repulsion. Despite the explicit warnings of the Jewish authorities that they were no longer to speak in the name of Jesus, the church continued to gather at Solomon's portico and to speak in the name of Jesus. Now, some people on the outside might not have wanted to identify with that because that's rather dangerous. Persecution is probably coming. And they don't want to get in the midst of that. That might be the case. However, contextually, think verse 5. Great fear came on them because of Ananias. Think verse 11. Great fear came on them because of Sapphira. I think contextually what the idea here is that the apostolic miracles prove that God is among these people and the death of Ananias and Sapphira prove that Jesus Christ is purifying this body and they don't want to have a part of that. They respect it, but knowing their own hearts, they don't want to get in the midst of that. Because they fear for their life. It's intimidating when you watch Jesus purifying souls and you see sin exposed in assembly. And I would say on the basis of this Eden Baptist Church, if we never scare anyone away from this church, there's something wrong with us. A vibrant, healthy, God-exalting church in which Jesus is purifying His people is going to intimidate some folks. Hopefully they respect you, but they're not going to want to be part of you. Our task is to meet such people when they visit our church with grace, with compassion, with warm welcome. We want to meet them even sometimes with comfort. And I've had these conversations at the door with people that have visited our church. Please be at peace. Please understand, I say, as they talk to me about how intimidating this place is. We're here for your good. You're welcome here. Jesus' arms are wide open and so are ours, but they're intimidated. Maybe we need to see more of that, maybe less. God knows and we must discern our hearts. But a warm, compassionate welcome of those who visit yet. Let's understand the purification of Jesus' church is a troubling reality that will not appeal to everyone. None of the rest dared to join them. There's repulsion. There is, secondly, attraction. Verse 14, and you might think, and some have thought, Luke's lost his way here. He is really confused. Look at verse 14, says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. He isn't lost at all. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. His influence was so great that just the shadow of his presence could be healing. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So many were intimidated, but the sick particularly could not resist the opportunity for healing. And people from all around descended on the apostles. And many believed and apparently, no one was turned away. It's not just those who gave a lot of money and those who had a particularly unique uh, faith. Everybody was being healed, one after another. Even the mere shadow of the apostles, like the hem of Jesus' robe with the woman with the issue of blood, even the shadow of these men was sufficient to heal. The same God who struck down Ananias and Sapphira dead, was pouring out life and healing grace upon the multitudes. He's not a safe God, but He's good. And the church grew by leaps and bounds. Some stayed away. Others couldn't stay away. 
The magnetism of the church simultaneously repulsed and attracted because Jesus was purifying those people. I am very thankful for the words of William Carver here. They're profound. He lived a long, long time ago, died a long time ago, but he said this, when the purity of the church and the obvious presence of the Lord in it make people afraid to join, then there is no way to prevent growth. This is not a man that's lost his faculties. This is a man that understands what's going on in Acts 5. It's when there is a purity that repulses sinners that there is a genuine forgiveness that attracts them. And a church should be turning people off while they're turning people on. While they're turning others on. Now, let's just say, as we think on all this, that dealing with sin and community can lead to despair. Let's be honest. And we can be easily tempted to follow the world's way of dealing with sin, and that is to run from it. Discipline is not an easy thing to accept sometimes. And one of the easiest things is just to back away from it. But as a child is stuck with loving parents who discipline him, so as believers we are stuck in the family of God in one manner of speaking. Now I realize that there are Christians who need to leave churches. There are churches that are entrenched in moral and doctrinal deviance. There are churches where it's just time for people to leave. I understand all of that, but putting that all aside, that qualifier, for the most of us, for the most length of our life, we are part of a particular family of God. We choose that family, and we stick with that family through thick and thin as we stick with one another for the long haul in the purification process that Jesus is doing. And guess what that means? It means that we are purposefully living in a community where our sins are exposed. Not all of them, thankfully, but just the right ones to just the right degree to bring about the transforming change that Jesus has determined to achieve in us. He is not going to be denied. If we remain a faithful church, He will be purifying us He will be conforming us into the image of Christ. We should rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus is relentlessly, passionately, lovingly, powerfully transforming this church into His likeness until we shine through all eternity with His moral purity. In community as sinners, we're being remade by God into a purer and purer community through faith. And that process involves the harsh realities of church discipline. Both formal church discipline and informal church discipline that takes place all the time. Week after week after week, I am brought under the informal discipline of this church. Over and over again, my weakness and my sin, my self-centeredness and my pride is exposed by people who say things I don't like by people who I offend, by situations that are exposed in the light of God's Word, by the rebuke of someone's good example. In many ways, over and over again, our sin is exposed. That is the beauty of what Christ is doing. That's not to be seen as, well, we don't have a utopian church. Everything's not absolutely beautiful and pleasant and fun. No, it's not. It's a family. And when families discipline, it's not always easy. But as we close the service, and as we think on things like Galatians 6 and verse 1, of how we together are to be comforting and strengthening and lifting one another up in this walk, as we close, may we pause to celebrate that our Father loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to purify us into the likeness of Jesus. And he's got an awful lot of work to do in my life, an awful lot of work to do. For all of us, this is the case. But praise God that he's doing it. 
And he's doing it within the context of this family. Right now, oh, how many are our warts and blemishes and how dirty are our robes. But there is coming a day when we are going to shine like a radiant bride before our Savior. Purified from every defilement of the flesh forever and ever. And by His grace, may we look back to our church and realize that in all the struggle and the trial and the exposure and the painful exposure of our sin, that God was using His church to purify His bride. And maybe throughout all eternity, we will rejoice and hug one another as we think of what God, our Father, was doing. Sometimes painful, sometimes hard, so often humbling, but to know we had a Father who knew how to correct us so that we could live forever in his presence in purity. What joys and anticipations are ours. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we pause to give you thanks as believers in Christ for the purifying work of Jesus. And I pray earnestly also in behalf of anyone here who is separated from Christ who has not been forgiven of their sins, has not embraced the death and resurrection of Christ. And I pray, Father, earnestly in their behalf that they would understand how wretched they are without Jesus, how sinful and how far short they fall from your glory. If this prayer is offensive, I pray, God, that you will break that heart but if this prayer is ringing true, I pray that you'll continue to soften and open the eyes of the blind and help them to see that with Jesus there is forgiveness of sin and a transformed life. For those of us who are experiencing that transformation, I pray in behalf of Eden Baptist Church that as we see sin exposed, that we would never respond in pride, but that we would know of your grace in our lives, and that we would help each other in the process of sanctification. Pausing here to give you praise and thanks that Jesus is purifying his church, even as we pray. We thank you for this. We praise you for it in his name, asking to help us take the long look to know where you're leading us. Through Jesus we ask, amen.